the six miles, the success depended on the generosity of others. The pair set a goal of raising £500 for the race course, but in the end, they more than tripled their target. She said, we set ourselves a target of £500, and you can imagine our surprise and delight when we report that the final figure is 1530 Patricia finished saying, thank you all, and please, please continue to support and enjoy our wonderful race course. Welsh farmers and food producers have breathed a huge sigh of relief after the Christmas Eve Brexit trade deal breakthrough. FUW President Glyn Roberts welcomed the EU's formal listing of the UK as a third country, a move which is said to be essential in terms of allowing Welsh food exports to the EU. He said our access to the EU market, which is the destination for three quarters of Welsh food and drink exports, will still face significant barriers after December 31st, with non-tariff barrier costs expected to rise by 4 to 8%. NFU Cymru President John Davies also welcomed the deal. He said given the importance of the EU market to the Welsh farming sector, this deal is vital in maintaining trade with such a valuable export market. Whilst we welcome the deal that has been agreed, we will now need to take our time to analyse and fully digest what has been agreed and the implications it has for our sector and NFU Cymru's members. But he pointed out that exports will be subject to procedures and controls which did not apply previously. He went on to say these non-tariff barriers, as they are known, are a friction to trade and add to the cost of doing business. All efforts must be now focused on working together to find ways of minimising the impact of red tape and non-tariff barriers on the movement of goods. However, continuing disruption at British ports because of the COVID situation raised fears for the New Year's lamb trade. Normally in December, around 3,000 tonnes of sheep meat and 1,500 tonnes of beef would be exported from Wales, with over 90% going to Europe in a trade worth around £15 million in a single month. HCC Chief Executive Gwyn Howells said December is normally a major trading month, particularly for the sheep sector, with a heavy Christmas and New Year export trade for both standard and light lambs. Inevitably, this is a huge problem for Welsh processors who are unable to supply customers as expected. The numbers of livestock being brought to market by farmers has declined due to the uncertainty, and we will be monitoring the situation. I'm Charlie James, and you're up to date on Pure West Radio. Tonight, I, the teller of curious tales, open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories, true stories stranger than any fiction ever written. Listen to the teller of curious tales. This is the story of the wickedest city in the world, Irkutsk in Serbia. This city has a population of about 120,000 people and as many as 500 murders are committed in a year's time. Arrests average only one for every 50 murders, and less than half of these are followed by convictions. Several years ago, the decent elements of the population borrowed a page from our own West, 
and attempted to form a vigilante committee to rid the city of its criminals. But all the ex-convicts and active thugs joined this committee, crowding out the decent members, so conditions became worse than they were. The vigilantes shot rich merchants in broad daylight in order to rob them. Any citizens suspected of having anything worth taking had his house burglarised under the pretense of house inspection and penal confiscation. No man's life or property was safe until the central government at Moscow sent soldiers to rid the city of its vigilantes. Today, under what practically amounts to martial law, crime has fallen to some extent. At any rate, it isn't in the open anymore. Most of the law-breaking is committed indoors. When these soldiers are withdrawn, what will happen then? Your guess is as good as mine. The gong strikes. My time is up. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. The teller of curious tales has closed his book and about to go on his way. I'll be back again on Ghost Chronicles International with more strange stories. Sleep tight. <laughs> Tonight, I, the teller of curious tales, open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories, true stories, stranger than any fiction ever written. Listen to the teller of curious tales. On a bright October day in 1899, an Egyptian farmer was working in his fields. Suddenly, the ground gave way from under him, and a part of the field which he and his ancestors had been working for centuries sank into the earth and carried this bewildered farmer with it. When the hubbub had subsided and his mind was cleared of its bewilderment and confusion, he looked around. He found himself in an enormous subterranean room, a room connected with countless similar rooms, all bare of furniture, all deathly silent, but every one lined from ceiling to floor with shelves, shelves loaded with small, nondescript bundles. Had he stumbled into a treasure trove, had he found new tombs which ancient Egyptians were so clever at concealing? He snatched one of the bundles and found it wrapped round with cloth like a mummy. He began removing the wrappings and after working feverishly for some minutes, he held the unwrapped object in his hand. It was an embalmed cat. This subterranean labyrinth was a cat cemetery, 
and literally millions were stacked away on these shelves. Cats were sacred to the ancient Egyptians and were embalmed and mummified like their masters so that they too could arise on the Egyptian judgment day. He clambered out of the cat mine and walked to Alexandria and went to a speculator in antiquities telling him of his find. The speculator, being a shrewd businessman, shipped a boatload of these 3,000-year-old mummified cats to Liverpool, England, where 180,000 of them were offered for sale at public auction to be used for fertiliser. The auctioneer, using a dead cat for a hammer, sold them in ton lots to the assembled English farmers. They bought approximately $18.50 a ton, about a fifth of a cent for each cat. And now, on the day of the resurrection, millions of Egyptians will wait in vain for their beloved cats to arise from the dead. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs> Tonight, I, the teller of curious tales, open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories, true stories, stranger than any fiction ever written. Listen to the teller of curious tales. The generally accepted belief is that the words printer's devil originated from the fact that the printer's apprentice was always covered with ink and therefore resembled one of Satan's imps, hence the name Printer's Devil. But this isn't quite true. When printing was first invented, it was looked upon as the work of the evil one. So when Aldous Manitus brought a young Negro slave in Egypt and brought him to work in his printing establishment, the Venetians believed the printer had travelled to hell and brought back a demon. The report spread that Manitius was a sorcerer, using an imp of Satan to do his devilish work of printing. Resentment grew until one day a frenzied mob bent on ridding Venice of this horrid evil stormed Manitius's establishment. In order to save the life and that of the Negro boy, he was forced to face the crowd and speak to them. Men of Venice, this boy is no demon. He's a human from a land where all men are black. He's no printer's devil, but flesh and blood like you and me. Pinch him and feel for yourselves and see. The crowd's anger was appeased, but from that day, the boy and all his successors were printer's devils. 
gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs> Tonight, I, the teller of curious tales, open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories, true stories, stranger than any fiction ever written. Listen to the teller of curious tales. Do you believe in the devil? When man lived in caves, long before he could write, he scraped crude pictures on the walls of his home. Among these uncouth drawings, we find sketches of demons and devils, for the belief in the evil spirit, in Satan, dates back to the dawn of mankind. It's a universal belief too, for wherever we find human life, we find this belief. The devil may go by a thousand names, but his description is the same in China, in Iceland, in Timbuktu, or right in our own backyard. Dante says in describing him, Ah, what a fierce cruelty his look bespake. In act how bitter he did seem, with wings buoyant outstretched, and feet of nimble's tread. His shoulder, proudly eminent and sharp, was with a sinner charged. By his horn she held him, the foot sinew gripping fast. The gong strikes, my time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. But on my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, Sleep tight. <laughs> Tonight, I, the teller of curious tales, open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories, true stories, stranger than any fiction ever written. Listen to the teller of curious tales. This is the story of Michael de Tenny of Budapest, Hungary. Michael was hard up. His wife and children were in want. All he had left from his more prosperous days was a $25,000 life insurance policy. He wrote the company offering to give up the policy if they would pay him $12,000. They wrote back, refusing the offer. He called them up and warned them that they were due for an unpleasant surprise. 
The insurance official who spoke to him laughed. But if he had known what plans Michael had formed to take care of his family, he probably wouldn't have been so funny to him. That evening, Michael ate dinner with his prosperous friend at a little sidewalk cafe. Suddenly, and in the middle of the meal, Michael arose from the table and in cold blood fired six shots into his friend's body, killing him instantly. When the police came, they found Michael laughing. At his trial, he refused a lawyer provided by the state. He laughed at the attorney the insurance company sent over to defend him. He did his utmost to help the prosecution prove that it was a premeditated murder. He laughed when the jury brought in a verdict of guilty and the judge passed the sentence of death. He laughed when he mounted the scaffold and the executioner adjusted the black cap. He was still chuckling when the trap was sprung and his neck snapped. Michael Deteni had had his revenge. Had Michael committed suicide, the insurance company would have paid nothing. But there was a clause in his policy which paid a double indemnity in the case of a natural death. Even the insurance company had to admit that hanging is not a natural way to die, and Michael's family received $50,000 from them. It was an unpleasant surprise. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs> Tonight, I, the teller of curious tales, open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories. True stories, stranger than any fiction ever written. Listen to the teller of curious tales. There is in the British Museum an ancient manuscript which carries the following heading. Ancient Prediction. Entitled by popular tradition, Mother Shipton's Prophecy. Published 1448. It reads as follows. Carriages without horses shall go and accidents fill the world with woe. We all know that's true enough, don't we? We'll continue. Around the earth thoughts shall fly in the twinkle of an eye. If that doesn't predict radio, what does it do? Through the hills man shall ride with never a horse at his side. And here we have trains and tunnels. Underwater men shall walk, shall ride, shall sleep, shall talk. And there we have the diver and the submarine. 
In the air men shall be seen in white and black and green. Iron in the water shall float as easily as a wooden boat. These are so plain they need no explaining, but now we come to what I think was her most remarkable prediction. The discovery of gold in California. She said, Gold shall be found and shown in a land that is not now known. Not bad, was it, for a woman living in an obscure country town in England almost 500 years ago? Was all this just a lucky guess, or are some people gifted with the ability to look into the future? Until recently, science jeered and said guesswork. But now, Alexis Carroll, one of the world's most brilliant scientists, says he is convinced that every man has, at times, flashes when he can see into the future. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs> Tonight, I, the teller of curious tales, open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories. True stories, stranger than any fiction ever written. Listen to the teller of curious tales. Have you ever eaten a Mike apple? It's a pale yellow apple with an excellent flavour. But somewhere in the pulp of every Mike apple, you'll find a small red speck, exactly like the tinge of fresh blood. There's a strange story behind this fruit, and this is it. It's named after a farmer, Micah Rood, who lived outside of Norwich, Connecticut, early in the 18th century. Micah was known as a hard-working, industrious young man. Suddenly, his habits changed. He grew idle, quarrelsome, intemperate. No longer was his farm the showplace of the community. He neglected his cattle. He shunned his neighbours. Some thought he was bewitched. Others spoke of insanity. All this took place during the winter of 1727. The following spring, when the orchard burst into bloom, a strange phenomena took place. All of Rood's apple trees were covered with pink and white blossoms as usual. All except one, and its flowers were blood red. And the marvel didn't end there. The tree that bore the red blossoms was the only one in the orchard that wasn't covered with ruddy, red-cheeked apples. Its fruit 
was waxen yellow. When the apples from this tree fell to the ground, each apple, without exception, was found to have within a well-defined bright red globule, called by those who saw it a drop of blood. This strange occurrence soon had the whole community buzzing with gossip, and suspicion was brought to a head when someone remembered that a peddler had passed through Norwich about a year before. He had spent the night at Micaroods, and no one had seen him since. Someone suggested that perhaps the young farmer had murdered him for his money, and then buried the body under the apple tree. The talk grew, until one afternoon a mob gathered, and armed with picks and shovels, swarmed out to Rood's farm. Micca met them at the entrance to his property, and refused them admittance, but he was soon subdued, and the digging commenced. The men dug for almost an hour, and then the first grisly discovery was made. A foot, still encased in a rotting shoe, came into view. Then an arm, the torso, and the head. Soon a whole human skeleton lay stretched on the ground, grinning up at the horrified farmers. Mikarud's crime had been discovered. They set out for Mika's house to drag him back to the village and to justice. They found a raving, tearing maniac. Mika was hopelessly insane. His mind had given way under the pressure of his conscience. He died within a few months. The fruit from this odd tree was known for many years as the Mika apple, until time shortened it to what it is today, the Mike Apple. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs> Tonight, I, the teller of curious tales, open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories. True stories, stranger than any fiction ever written. Listen to the teller of curious tales. We always think of man as being the master and destroyer of all other animals. Although this is quite true, there is one animal that man has never quite controlled or mastered. The rat. Wherever man goes, the rat follows or accompanies him. Whether it be building a ship, erecting a church, digging a grave, ploughing a field or taking a journey, the rat must be considered. He goes around the world on men's ships and wherever man plants a colony, 
the rat plants one of his own. Build three walls in a jungle, and before the fourth is finished, the rat will have arrived. Millions and millions of dollars are spent each year to destroy them, but they still seem to thrive. They are the one animal who lives with man, but is not his friend. They steal his food, they destroy his works, and worst of all, they infect him with the dreaded typhus and bubonic plague. Goldsmith says that before the brown rat arrived in Ireland, frogs were more abundant. They were so hunted in their marshes by the rats, they were eaten clean off the Emerald Isle. There is something horrible and fascinating about rats. No horror story is complete without their scampering through the echoing rooms and the gnawing of their teeth is heard behind the walls as their gleaming eyes peer from their holes. How often have you heard of dying prisoners in their loathsome dungeons, seeing rats through the horrid gloom, their small eyes like glittering coals, as they rush through the death-like silence on their claw-like feet. There are many legends about rats. A German one, which has come down from the Middle Ages, tells us about a wicked bishop named Hatto, who let his people starve while his own barns were filled with grain. Their cries for food became so loud they annoyed him, so he invited all the hungry people to an empty barn to pray for food. And while they were on their knees, he locked them in, set fire to the barn and burned them all to death. Next day, a judgment was sent on him. Thousands and thousands of rats. They overran his house, they overran his barns, and even threatened the bishop himself. He became so frightened, he fled to an island in the middle of the Rhine and locked himself in the house he had built there. But the rats swam the river, gnawed their way into the house, and thousands of them attacked the bishop. In a blind panic, he fought them off for hours. Faster than he killed them, new rats kept arriving. Thousands and thousands of them. They ran up his legs. They leapt upon him from the walls. They dropped from the ceiling. Exhausted, the bishop slumped to the floor and the rats swarmed over him. Nothing but his bones were ever found. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs>
open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories. True stories, stranger than any fiction ever written. Listen to the teller of curious tales. In 1672, Ben Johnson was New York's official executioner by appointment of the king. Ben had one assistant who was permitted by law to help with the torturing, prepare the gallows and perform other minor duties. But when the law took a life, no one in the royal colony of New York could do that but Ben Johnson. Since Ben was paid by the job, and New York was a law-abiding colony, his income was, at times, very meagre. So Ben took up burglary as a sideline. He was quite successful at it, too, for a while. But one night, as he was dropping from the second-story window of a house he had just robbed, Ben fell right into the night watchman's arms. The watchman promptly took Ben to jail. Now, burglary at that time was a capital offence, and while not as serious as a crime as murder, the punishment was the same, namely hanging. Ben was brought to trial, and the court had very little difficulty finding him guilty, so the judge sentenced him to hang himself. But Ben was no fool. He refused to do it, knowing there was no one else in the whole colony legally qualified to do the job. This refusal put the judge in a spot. In order to have Ben hanged, he would have to send to London for a new hangman, and that would take months. Until the new man arrived, Ben would be sitting in jail, eating his head off at the taxpayer's expense. An extravagance the citizens of colonial New York strongly opposed. Then the judge got an idea. The nucleus of this idea was Ben's assistant. Although it meant a comparatively light sentence, it would at least rid New York of a burglar, and that was the main object. Ben was sentenced to 39 lashes at the whipping post. His right ear was cut off, and he was exiled from the colony. Since this was Ben Johnson's only bid for historical mention, no one knows what came of him afterward. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs>
According to the Greeks, Apollo made a lion to frighten the goddess Diana, but she made a fool of Apollo by turning the lion into a cat, and that is the Greek story of Tabby's creation. Regardless of how cats got on this earth, they have been domesticated animals for over 4,000 years. To the ancient Egyptians, they were sacred, and every family had at least one. When the family cat passed on, every member of the family shaved his eyebrows as a symbol of mourning. The Egyptians left many pictures of cats, and although they resemble those left alive today, their living habits must have been entirely different. We find pictures of them swimming in water, retrieving ducks, like our present hunting dogs. Then, with the coming of the Christian era, pussy fell into disrepute. And this animal, which had once been worshipped, was looked upon as a disciple of the devil. In fact, a black cat was considered the devil himself, and during the Middle Ages, every feast day ended with the throwing of a cat from the church steeple. This bad reputation won the cat an honoured place in the witch's circle. There are innumerable stories of witches turning into cats, and it was accepted as a fact that at the end of seven years, a cat became a devil. And if the cat wasn't killed before that time, it would murder its master. A rather gruesome story is told in Brittany of a farmer who didn't subscribe to this belief and who was found dead in bed one morning with his throat terribly torn. An innocent man was arrested for the murder, but the farmer's son noticed the cat staring at the corpse, its eyes blazing with hate. So he fastened a string around the dead man's arm and dropped the end to the yard below through the window. Then he told the police to watch the body whilst he pulled the string. He did so. The dead man's arm gave a jerk and the cat, imagining its master was reviving, sprang onto the bed and furiously tore at the already much lacerated throat. Whereupon the cat was tried, found guilty and condemned to be burned alive. And the innocent suspect was set free. Even today, millions of people believe that a cat's viciousness is determined by the length of its tail. And in order to ensure a cat's docility, will cut off a part or even the whole of its tail. But through all these dark years, there were those who admired and loved this useful and inscrutable animal and gave it a safe retreat. Behind the church of San Lorenzo in Florence, Italy, surrounded by a moat, stands the cloister of the cats. Here, in the garden of greenest grass, shaded by a few cypress trees, live innumerable cats, thin ones, Fat ones, lazy ones, lively, playful ones. Here all cats find sanctuary. Here they may end their days in quiet seclusion, well fed and unmolested. Here they may lie in the sun, or romp on the grass, or climb the trees, 
or gracefully wash their faces and sleek bodies. Here, they are safe from persecution and cruelty. Here, in the cloister of the cats. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs>
The South African suicide was practically forgotten when Room 14 had its second tragedy. This time, a Frenchman. He was found hanging from the same hook, a piece of the same cord around his neck, the same doubled up legs, the same expression of nameless horror. Again, the verdict was suicide. The doctor remarking on the strange power of suggestion. That day, all the guests left the hotel. The proprietor was in despair, offering a hundred francs to anyone who would spend a night in the room. A sergeant of police, an ex-soldier who had served in Africa, accepted the offer. On Thursday night, he slept in room 14. He slept soundly, and next morning reported that he had no way been disturbed. But someone remembered that both deaths occurred on Friday night, so the sergeant was asked to stay in room 14 that night. He agreed and accepted another hundred francs and laughed when anyone tried to dissuade him. Friday night passed and Saturday morning came. The waiter's knocks on the door of room 14 once more remained unanswered. After the door was broken in, there was the sergeant, hanging from the ancient hook, the curtain rope around his neck, an expression of horror on his face. No violence, no foul play. The newspapers took it up, and the headlines screamed of a murderous ghost, a haunted room in the heart of Paris. They offered a considerable reward to anyone who would stay in the room. Ricardo Garibaldi moved in. For four days he never left room 14. Twice during the day and once each evening Garibaldi was called on the telephone and each time he answered that he had seen and heard nothing. This continued until Friday. Twice that evening he answered the phone, but on Saturday morning Garibaldi was dead and he died exactly as all the others had, but this time the police refused the doctor's verdict of suicide. They insisted it was murder and set out to prove it, for they had a tiny piece of paper on which was written, something's happening, the wall is and then one word, assassins. Two detectives, unknown to that part of Paris, came to the Hotel d'Amsterdam. One registered to room 14, the other was given accommodations on the floor below. It was Friday night. One detective was hiding under the bed, the other sat up reading. Everything was quiet. Suddenly the silence was broken by a hissing sound, a noise like that of escaping gas. But both men were prepared for this, as they expected a stupefying gas of some kind. They stuffed their noses with tiny cones of cotton which had been treated to neutralise gas. The man in the chair feigned drowsiness and then deep sleep. The lights went out. Slowly, 
a part of the wall began moving forward, and a figure stood in the recess. A squat, deformed Chinaman, with long, thin arms and fingers that moved like the legs of an imprisoned insect. He advanced towards the detective, who was feigning sleep. Silently, the detective under the bed rolled out and stood up. For the first time, the silence was broken when he snapped out the following, Stand still! Up with your hands! After that, pandemonium broke loose. Fighting, struggling, tables and chairs thrown and overturned. Two shots rang out. Whistles shrilled in the street. The sound of running men and trampling feet. Then quiet again. When the detectives turned on their flashlights, they found two Chinamen and a white man on the floor. Both Chinese were unconscious. The white man was stunned. By the time the two detectives had handcuffed the latter, six other men were driven through the secret wall opening by the police. After these men were safely under lock and key, a careful search of the premises was made. An underground passage leading to room 14 from the house next door was found and through this passage, the murderer had come to rob and kill. Stealing silently into the room, he strangled his victims, whose legs were then doubled up, and after rigor mortis had set in, a rope was put around his neck, and he was hung on the ancient hook. So was solved the mystery of the suicide room. strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs>
and the village carpenter brought in a rude pine coffin. The dead man was lifted from the couch and placed inside. Then the mourners walked past to take the last look before the lid was nailed on. When old Donald crept over, he not only looked at the corpse, but taking the hand of his dead friend, he lifted it to his shoulder and in a pleading voice begged, Take me pains with thee, laddie. Take in the name of God, take them. The lamentations had ceased. The room was hushed. Slowly, old Donald straightened. I think he hadn't been able to do for 15 years. Standing upright, he discarded his stick and walked from the room. What was this? A miracle? Or was it just a variation of the laying on of hands? Any doctor can give you plenty of high-sounding names for a type of cure, and a really good physician recognises its existence. But he can't tell you why. At least not convincingly. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs>17th century were brought to trial for this crime, firmly believed in their powers. When King James attended the trial of Grace Keith, a woman accused of attempting his life by casting a spell, the prisoner admitted that she and the devil conspired to witch up a storm that would sink the ship on which the king was travelling. She attempted to accomplish this by saying incantations over a cat, whose paws, for some magical reason, had the knuckles of a dead man tied to them. The cat was baptised and cast into the sea. A storm came up, the ship foundered, and the king's life had been endangered. Failing to kill his majesty in this manner, Grace now proceeded to bring about his murder in another way. This time, she hung a toad up by its heels so that its venom would drip into an oyster shell. She then tried to bribe someone to steal some of the king's dirty linen in order to cause extraordinary pains, which would continue 
until His Majesty died. All this seems extremely silly, except that there was a storm, and the King did suffer excruciating pains. Hence, the prosecution. So Grace Keith was judged guilty, taken to Castle Hill, bound to a stake, strangled, and her body burnt to ashes. But this isn't the end. Here comes the really curious feature of this story. Before she went to her death, she laughed at the prosecutors and said that after they'd burned her body, she would sit in a tree at the crossroads in the form of a crow to torment them forever. And whenever they drove past the crow would caw, the horses would shy, and she would always be present to mock them. Naturally, a legend developed from this, a legend that has come down to the present day. Hearing of it, a young American determined to try the efficacy of the witch's prophecy, drove a horse which had never been within 20 miles of Castle Hill, into this crossroads without touching the reins. In the exact spot mentioned in the legend, the horse balked and refused to go forward. He wouldn't budge until he had been blindfolded and led past the spot. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs>
your Christmas station in the county we love.